Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for Scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's Word and apply His message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today, it's part two of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To the emperor Tiberius in 30 AD, Pilate had built a Tiberium, a temple to Tiberius. It's flattering to be named after the emperor. Near Caesarea, he dedicated it to the Roman emperor Tiberius, who was ruling at this time. The Sea of Galilee had been now, the name had been changed to the Sea of Tiberius after the emperor. They're changing everything. They're changing everything. King Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, founded Tiberias, the city on the western shore in 20 AD. And this stone they found, it was a memorial stone to the divine Augusti Tiberio from Pontius Pilate, the prefect of Judea, dedicating a temple to him. As for the wife of Pontius Pilate, her name in history is Claudia Procula or Procla. She is venerated as a saint in the Orthodox Church and in the Ethiopian Orthodox Church governess of Judea, saint, widow, and martyr. Could not find her cause of death, but Claudia Procula was not canonized a Catholic saint. And so that's kind of interesting. And I was trying to research why, and I found some different theories. One theory that interested me was that when she was having this horrible dream, this nightmare, all day it haunted her. She suffered so greatly from it. There might've been some demonic activity going on there. She's a pagan woman. They have many little G gods. Satan could have been tormenting her, trying to get her to convince her husband not to kill Jesus. That would thwart God's whole plan of salvation. So there's just one line in scripture about her. And so she is not, uh, the Catholic Church does not have a feast day for her. But going on, they shouted out more and more, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Again, when we say that on Good Friday, Us in the crowd, we just feel the tension, and it's hard to say. A third time, Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I found no crime in him, deserving death. Therefore, I'll chastise him and release him. This is the third time Pilate has said not guilty. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate gave sentence that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison, Barabbas, for insurrection and murder, whom they asked for, Jesus, he delivered up to their will. So Jesus has been in front of the high priest in the Sanhedrin trial. Then he shipped to Herod Antipas, and he's before Herod Antipas, mocked. Then he goes back to Pilate, and he's before Pilate. Three times he said he's innocent. Now they lead him away, and they seized one Simon of Cyrene. They seized him. Have you ever been taken in or helped by a Simon of Cyrene? Maybe they didn't really want to help you at first, but they kind of got in on your journey and they walked with you through something really hard. Or you walked with someone else through something really hard, like you were their Simon of Cyrene. Help them carry their burden. I've had many Simon of Cyrenes come to me, help me. They led him away. They seized Simon of Cyrene. He was coming in from the country and they laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And they compelled a passerby of Simon of Cyrene. This is Mark's account. Mark says they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus to carry his cross. So in Mark's account, he has two sons. 
and they are called Alexander and Rufus. And this must have been very memorable in their lives as well. Their dad is pulled out of the crowd and meant to help carry this guy on the Via Della Rosa up to Calvary, and their kids are watching. And in Romans 16, St. Paul says, Greet Rufus, eminent in the Lord, also his mother and mine. It's thought that Rufus, that could be that Rufus. They brought him to the place of Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. A skull. And they offered him wine mingled with myrrh, but he did not take it. In Mark's account, he will have no wine with myrrh in it. Myrrh is an a anesthetic. It's a sedative. It has medicinal properties. He doesn't want any senses dulled. He's, he's going to suffer with no... <laughs> yeah, yeah. But there is a servant of God from Poland, Wanda Malcheska. She has been made a servant of God. She's on her way to sainthood. She's a mystic. And she had revelations, private revelations. And one of them was about Simon of Cyrene, that he was at first hesitant, but changes beneath the gaze of Christ, unwillingly impressed to voluntarily become a journeyman with Christ, forced, reluctantly forced into the job of carrying Christ's cross, his look into Christ's face changes him forever. And here's what she writes about it. Christ looked upon him and Simon understood that gaze. Christ looked upon him and Simon understood that gaze. Simon immediately understood the mystery of the cross and fell in love with the Lord Jesus. I heard Simon tell the Lord Jesus, forgive me, Lord for not having rushed at the first demand of the Jews, for I did not know you. But seeing you suffer, I have come to the conviction that you are God hidden in human flesh. Your gaze confirmed my convictions, penetrating me to the depths of my being. It seemed to me that I could not carry your cross, which they put upon me, but I am now carrying it easily, because you, Lord, accompany me. Don't leave me. So how powerful is the gaze of Christ? And we just saw that with Peter last chapter, the gaze of Christ, when Peter had denied him not once, not twice, but three times, and the cock crows, and Jesus is passing, and their eyes meet, and the gaze of Christ, that benevolent, merciful gaze of Jesus Christ to Peter, and he goes out and weeps bitterly. So that's a powerful gaze. That's a powerful gaze when you look eye to eye with the Lord Jesus Christ and just let him see your whole soul. It's humanity looking at redeeming love straight in the eye, face to face as we really are. That same gaze of Jesus Christ is available to each of us every day in Eucharistic adoration. He's there to gaze on us and we can gaze on him. And that same gaze that changed Simon of Cyrene can also change us, just being with him, letting him look at you, letting him fully know you, letting him fully love you as you sit with him. And there followed him a great multitude of people and the women who bewailed and lamented him. Now, Luke is the one who tells us about the women. The others don't. Jesus turned to them and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep. Weep for yourselves. Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and weep for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never gave suck. Now, what is he talking about? Because in this culture, to bear life was always good. Women were cursed if they didn't have children, like Elizabeth, when she couldn't get pregnant, and Hannah, and some of the other sterile women in the Bible. So now he's saying, now he's saying that, that blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never gave set. That doesn't go with any of the Jewish religion. Every child is a gift from God. Every child is a blessing. It was a blessing to be pregnant. What is he talking about? Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. Why would they say that? 
Because in one biblical generation, it's going to be horrible for them and their children. Because Roman General Titus is going to come with his army from Rome and surround the entire temple, and their orders are to burn it to the ground. They're going to trap all the Jews in the temple area. They're going to take away all their water first. Then they're going to take away all their food. Josephus writes that some of the babies will, will be eaten. They'll be stewed and eaten. That's why how lucky it is if you're barren. How lucky it is for the woman who's not nursing her baby right now because she'll be dehydrated. She won't have any food. The kid will be crying and they're going to take the baby and stew it. And he has told them in the last chapter to run for the hills, to know the signs of the time. When this is about to happen, run to the hills. The Christians that ran to the hills, a hair of their head was not harmed. So this is called the consolation to the women, to the weeping women of Jerusalem. And you think it doesn't sound like a consolation, but it is because he's informing them once again. For if they do this when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? What does he mean? If they do this when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? Jesus is carrying this green cross, the green tree of life. In 40 years, it's going to be very dry and up in flames in the temple, which is easier to burn, green wood or dried out wood? Dried out wood. When that baby that the woman's holding, daughter of Jerusalem, with her baby, that baby is going to be 40 years old in 40 years when the temple's destroyed. Something's going to happen that Jesus wants the mothers to be aware of so they can tell their children. By 70 AD, that temple's going to easily go up in flames. Every last pillar, every last cedar of Lebanon inside it is going to be burnt to the ground. It's a consolation. It's a warning to flee to the mountains. Watch the signs of the time. Only Luke recorded that Jesus told the women that. The prophet Hosea was looking ahead to the punishment on the northern kingdom for their idolatry. And he will make this same prophecy. Jesus is quoting Hosea here. They shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills fall upon us, when the Assyrians come and burn the temple. Hosea's prophecy was fulfilled in the 8th century, if you remember, when the Assyrians took the northern tribes into captivity. So Jesus is applying the words of Hosea to the southern remaining two southern kingdoms based in Jerusalem. He's predicting the destruction of the temple, which did happen by Roman General Titus and the invading Roman army in 70 AD, leveled to the ground. Burnt like dry wood up in flames. Two other also were criminals. They were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place, which is called the skull. Now let's talk about that a minute, because if you go to Jerusalem, the Holy Sepulcher, Church of the Holy Sepulcher, there's a big dome where the tomb of Jesus is located right under that. Then there's a Catholic hall, another dome. And you can go inside when you're going in. These are the main doors. And that is the tent station on the Via Della Rosa, where the stripping of Jesus' garments out in the courtyard there is where they stripped him down to nothing. And then you go in and there's the stone of the anointing where Mary and the women anointed his body when it came off the cross. And you can venerate and you can kiss the stone. You'll go upstairs to the Greek Orthodox have the chapel that's right above the spot where Jesus was crucified. There's an altar there over the exact spot. There's a silver disc on the floor where you can kneel down under there and venerate pilgrims kneel and kiss the spot. First, you have to go upstairs, very narrow, steep stairs because Calvary, you have to go uphill and you'll come first to the Catholic chapel. It's called the Nails of the Cross Altar. It's where Jesus is another station of the cross where Jesus was nailed to the wood of the cross. Then the other side is the Greek Orthodox where he's crucified. And in the middle there is the sorrowful mother. And she has seven swords in her heart in that case there. The Roman Catholic chapel, the nailing to the cross, the Greek Orthodox chapel right over the crucifixion. It's called the crucifixion altar. 
And that's the 12th station on the Via Della Rosa. Jesus is raised on the cross, nailed and then raised. And it's crowded. It's always swarming with people. It's a cacophony. You think you're going to go have this quiet prayer time. And there's all these different faiths that have a little piece of, of the pie. And they're all the noise. And everyone's, it's quite a fun experience. The 13th station of the cross is the sorrowful mother. After removing Jesus' body, he's received by Mary, the sorrowful mother. And there's her little altar. Then there's a rock of Golgotha right behind the glass, right by the altar of the crucifixion. And there's a crack in that rock and it goes straight down through the floor. And down below is the chapel of Adam. And a lot of people miss it, but there's a chapel of Adam directly underneath. And according to tradition, the blood of Jesus dripped down the crack to the skull of Adam. Ephraim, I believe, the Syriac writes that Adam's bones were brought over by Noah in the ark in a small box. They kept Adam's bones. Jesus is crucified here on the rock of Golgotha. He dies on the cross down below. This is the chapel of Adam down below where the blood dripped down. And when they came to the place, which is called the skull, it's the skull of Adam. It's the skull of Golgotha. It means the place of the skull. And in Christian tradition, that is the skull of Adam, the first human being to die. Christ is called the second Adam by St. Paul, and that blood dripping down the skull will bring Adam back to life, eternal life, along with everyone else who believes. So there's the first Adam, there's the second Adam, and the blood drips down on the skull of Adam. They crucified Jesus and the criminals, one on the right, one on the left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. These two thieves are within earshot, and they hear Jesus praying, a prayer of forgiveness over the people who are murdering them all. And that one, the good thief, must have just been blown away, so deeply touched by that. No one would know this except to tell Luke that this happened. Luke wasn't there, so it has to be one of the women at the base of the cross reports this fact to Luke. The thieves heard Jesus forgiving his murderers. One of those women at the base of the cross must have told Luke the story. It's fulfillment of Psalm 22, to divide my garment among them for my raiment. They cast lots. We know, Luke tells us, that they did cast lots to divide his garments. The Roman soldiers play a chance game of lots. But for the Jews, casting lots has a deeper meaning. It's trusting God. Casting lots was a method that the Jews used before Pentecost. Lots or sticks, stones with symbols would be thrown and the result would be interpreted. In Proverbs, it says the lot is cast into the lap, but the decision is holy from the Lord. The Jews would pray, they'd cast the lots, and whatever it was, was God's will. They trusted it. But there will be no more casting lots to discern the will of God after Pentecost because the Holy Spirit will be poured out and illuminate their understanding. And now the ministry of the Holy Spirit is at work through the apostolic authority of the magisterium. People who love Jesus stayed near the foot of the cross, and so did scoffers. The people stood by watching. The rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, the chosen one. A scoffer in the Old Testament is the name of the proud, haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. Scoffers set a city aflame, but wise men turn away wrath. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. The soldiers also mocked Jesus coming up, offering him vinegar, sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. Pilate had it made in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Sometimes we see the I-N-R-I. That's Latin inscription for Jesus, the Nazarene king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at Jesus. Are you not the Christ? 
Save yourself and us. But the other one rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingly power. And he said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Wow. What a promise. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Would you love Jesus to say that to you? A 100% guarantee today, you will be with me in paradise. In this next 24-hour period, we're going, and you're going to be with me? He's known as the penitent thief or the good thief. He's one of the two unnamed persons in Luke's version of the crucifixion. The two thieves get a name in the Gospel of Nicodemus. It's not a canonical book, but he names them as Dismas and Gestus. So that's what tradition has called them since. Dismas, the good thief on Jesus' right-hand side, the blessing hand, and Gestus, the bad thief on Jesus' left-hand side, the cursing hand. In this painting, the angel carries the soul of the good thief who accepts Christ as God up to heaven, and the demon spears the soul of the thief who mocks Christ and takes him to another place. Dismas rebuked Gestus and asked for Christ's blessing. And they have 24, in that next 24 hours, we know Jesus, they think it's all over, he's in the tomb, and he's going to be harrowing Hades. He's going to be setting captives free that have been waiting and waiting and waiting. And guess who goes with him to do that? Dismas, the good thief. There he is in all these pictures with his cross. Because today you will be with me in paradise. So he takes Dismas along with him. He gets to witness Christ freeing those souls, preaching the good news, and they, they come with Christ. Today you will be with me because now the gates of heaven have been opened. There's a way back to the Father. Dismas, the good thief, the penitent thief, the first one to enter paradise. A thief! Here he is. I had to think about this one, but this is Eve. She was the first to sin with Dismas, the first to be redeemed. And they're walking together into paradise. I love that. St. Anastasis said this, The penitent thief again is an evangelist. Oh, thou excellent one. Thou was crucified as a thief. Thou comest forth suddenly as an evangelist. And St. John Chrysostom, the golden tongue, said this, A prophet, that is a preacher and enunciator of the greatness of Christ. Oh, the might of Jesus he gazed. The thief is now a prophet and preaches from the cross. He is a robber and Caesar of paradise. Thou sawest, he said, how he did not forget his former craft, even on the cross. But by his confession, he stole the kingdom of God. The thief purchased salvation from the tree. The thief stole the heavenly empire. He used compulsion to majesty. And below, we find no one before the thief to have merited the promise of paradise. Not Abraham, not Isaac, not Jacob, not Moses, not the prophets or the apostles. But before all, we find the thief. Then he compares the faith of the thief to that of Abraham, Isaac, Ezekiel, Moses. And this because he believed in Jesus, not in the temple, not on a throne, not in his glory, but on the cross in all his torments. It's pretty amazing faith. And I love this. This is Chrysostom still. He sees him, he says, in torments and adores him as if he were in glory. He sees him on the cross and prays to him as if he were sitting in heaven. He sees him and he calls upon him, hailing him as king of kings, saying, Lord, remember me when thou comest into your kingdom. Thou seest one crucified and thou callest him a king. 
Thou seest him hanging on a tree, and thou thinkest of the kingdoms of the heavens, a wonderful conversion of a thief. Now, that gives us hope. That gives us hope. This is a condemned thief, and he gets a deathbed conversion. It is not over until our very final breath. There's always hope for our kids. There's always hope. In the divine liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, he says, but like the good thief, I cry, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Death puts an end to human life as the time open to either accepting or rejecting the divine grace manifested in Jesus Christ. The New Testament speaks of judgment primarily in its aspect of the final encounter with Christ in his second coming, but repeatedly affirms that each will be rewarded immediately after death in accordance with his works and faith. Every single person will have an immediate reward according to our works and faith. We see that in Luke, in the, the poor man Lazarus and the words of Christ on the cross to the good thief. They each, we see that instant judgment, a final destiny of the soul, a destiny which can be different for some and for others. So we hope we're the good thief. The Byzantine cross, the, the, the footplate, the good thief goes up, the bad thief goes down. When the cardinals are voting on a new pope, they vote in this room in the Sistine Chapel. They're standing right before the last judgment of Christ. And who is up on the wall with his cross? Dismas, the good thief. And behind him, Simon of Cyrene, helping him carry his cross. Two others also were criminals. They were led away, put to death with him. They came to the place which is called the skull. There they crucified him. So the Lord died a thief's death, a criminal's death, on a Friday afternoon at 3 o'clock near the town dump. That's what Golgotha was, the place of the skull, to the western side of Jerusalem, on the west of Jerusalem, outside the city wall. And this was very common for the Romans to have crucifixions. This was their common form of punishment for criminals. Ancient Jewish historian Josephus refers to the crucifixion of thousands of people by the Romans. So you can imagine people and families coming into Jerusalem for the big Passover and the kids and everyone's walking by all these crosses, you know, and the mom's saying, Jimmy, you better be good. You know, you stay right by mama. You know. Josephus reports that the Romans crucified many during the walls of Jerusalem during the siege in 70. The idea was to terrorize the population and force a surrender. The number reached 500 crucifixions a day at one point until there was no more wood left for this purpose. They had ropes and pulley systems to get prisoners up and down off the crosses. Constantine the Great, the first Roman Catholic emperor, abolished crucifixion throughout the entire Roman Empire in 337 AD out of veneration for Jesus Christ, its most famous victim. It was now about the sixth hour. There was darkness over the entire land until the ninth hour, a three-hour total eclipse of the sun. While the sunlight failed, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. It's a four-inch thick curtain. The old covenant had come to a close. How do you get out of a covenant? This is a marriage between Yahweh and Israel. One party must die. God dies on the cross. The curtain immediately tears the covenants over. There's a new way back to the Father to go through. It's Jesus Christ. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is crying with a loud voice. He said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook. The rocks were split. We know that from Matthew 51. There was a massive earthquake. Rocks, earth shook. Rocks split open. 
Matthew tells us tombs were also opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, pagan Roman centurion, he praised God and he said, certainly this man was innocent. He praised God. So he knew, he knew certainly this man, Jesus was God's son. This man was innocent. Matthew says it this way, the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake that took place. They were filled with awe and they said, truly, this was the son of God. All the multitudes who assembled to see the sight, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts, which means to us, mia copa, mia copa, mia, maxima copa. Lord, have mercy on me. I'm sorry I didn't believe you are the son of God. I saw with my own eyes. All his acquaintances, the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance and saw all these things, firsthand eyewitnesses. Now, there was a man named Joseph from a Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man. The council is the Sanhedrin council. It's the rich Sadducees that make up the temple government system. There are 71 men that make up the highest Jewish court in the land led by the high priest. The council could decide on almost any fate of a person except because the Roman Empire, they could not execute the death penalty. Only Rome could do that. That must be decided by a Roman prefect. So the Sanhedrin council met inside Herod's temple in the chamber of hewn stone. Joseph of Arimathea was one of those men. He's on the council. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their purpose and their deed. He was looking for the kingdom of God. He's a seeker of truth. He's looking for the kingdom of God. He did not go along with it, but he was outvoted by the other members of the council. And when he went to Pilate, he asked for the body of Jesus. He took it down. He wrapped it in a linen shroud. Do you know what shroud that is? A linen shroud given by Joseph of Arimathea. Linen was very expensive. We still have that shroud today. It's a very famous, the most famous piece of linen in the entire world. It's been tested and tested and tested and tested and tested with ultraviolet light and everything else. They took it down, wrapped in a linen shroud. They laid him in a rock-hewn tomb where no one had ever yet been laid. Matthew tells us it's his own tomb, Joseph of Arimathea's own tomb. The tomb is still there today. This was the day of preparation. The Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed. They saw the tomb, how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointment. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. The holy tradition tells us these were the seven myrrh-bearing women. Their names are Mary Magdalene, Mary the wife of Cleopas, Joanna the wife of Herod's steward, Salome, the mother of sons of Zebedee, James and John, Susanna, Mary, the sister of Lazarus, and Martha, the sister of Lazarus. Those seven women are going to be waiting for Jesus in a garden, a perfection of women where one woman fell, Eve, a perfection of seven women are going to be back in the garden again, and we'll see what happens next week. You just heard the conclusion of the Gospel of Luke, Chapter 23, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible Studies, visit SeekingTruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.